0: This is a re-recording of a message originally delivered on Sunday, April 20th, 2014, Easter Sunday morning. What changes everything? you ever had an experience that basically brought you to say, well, this changes everything? Because you knew that it was such an event that it would so wholly affect you that everything you do would be colored by it. It could be something positive like marriage or children, grandchildren. But there are also those seasons when we have mortality checks. We have car wrecks, cancer. My wife's father suddenly passed a few months ago. Marriages crumbled before our eyes. But what do we know? David Brainerd was born on this day, April 20th, 1718, in Haddam, Connecticut. He was the son of Hezekiah, a Connecticut legislator, and Dorothy. He had nine siblings, one of whom was Dorothy's from a previous marriage. He was orphaned at the age of 14, as his father died in 1727 at the age of 46, and his mother died five years later. After his mother's death, Brainerd moved to East Haddam to live with one of his older sisters, Jerusha. We'll hear that name mentioned later on. At the age of 19, he inherited a farm near Durham, but he didn't enjoy farming and decided at that point to prepare to enter Yale. On the 12th of July, 1739, he recorded in his diary as having an experience of, quote, unspeakable glory that prompted him to have, again, quote, a hearty desire to exalt God. To set him on the throne and to seek first his kingdom. From what his language describes, we can surmise that David Brainerd, on July 12th of 1739, was born again. This would change everything. We celebrate this morning, Easter Sunday morning, the reminder that upon entering Jerusalem, teaching, performing miracles, sharing with his disciples being betrayed, beaten, mocked, and murdered, that Jesus Christ on the third day rose from the dead. That fact changed the world forever. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This chapter has quite a few verses, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of how does the resurrection change everything. First, a little background. The city of Corinth was something of a gateway city, a center for transportation and trade. Because of the increasing commerce and transiency, Corinth embraced its diversity, also on the negative side, with idolatry, pluralism, syncretism of religion, sex trade, and corruption that was rampant. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, arguably the unhealthiest church that we see in the New Testament. And he wrote it while living in Ephesus, among what many to be considered the healthiest church spoken of in the early parts of the New Testament. In spite of its lack of health, Paul had a deep affection for these messed up people. 1 Corinthians 16.24 says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul did not always include such affectionate language. He certainly loved all of the people in the churches that he ministered to. But there was something special about the Corinthian church. In fact, we see at the beginning of the letter, his affection driving the stated purpose of the letter, 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9. I give thanks to my God always for you, and listen, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, and in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. See, his affection for these people was derived from the fact that God had shown such grace. He had saved them. And in that he had shown them great affection, because Christ was in their midst. He goes on to say, Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's great concern here was for the unity of the church in Corinth. Paul had received reports about their divisions, their theological error, and sinful tolerance while he was in Ephesus. While they were in the midst of mass corruption, some even creeping into the church, like the tolerance of sexual sin, Paul aims to build up their unity in Christ, to have them rally around the common faith given by Christ to receive his grace that Christ's righteousness alone is what makes the church, not position or power or cultural tolerance. Essentially, while he deals with the specifics of these divisions, the golden thread that runs throughout this letter is a clear articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, filled with its doctrines and theological moorings. Paul believed that a right understanding of the gospel would aright their ship. He believed that a right understanding of the gospel would set the hearts of true believers on a course of holiness. Paul believes, as we will see, that Christ's life, death, burial, even resurrection changes everything. Now, first of all, we're going to look at verses 1-11. through I want us to see, first of all, how the resurrection changes our understanding of the Gospel. Beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins, our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one so untimely unborn, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach... And so you believe. I want to see, I want us to see, how the resurrection changes our understanding of the gospel. In that, the resurrection gives our gospel clarity. The resurrection gives our gospel security. The resurrection also gives our gospel boldness. First of all, clarity. See, every religion has a gospel, and essentially, everyone has a religion. We all believe something about how we are to live. Paul just concluded speaking to the church in chapter 14 about confusion that had crept into corporate worship. He focuses on a clear understanding of the gospel, specifically the resurrection of Christ. He believed that the resurrection and a unified understanding of the resurrection would help bring clarity to their corporate worship experience. Paul believed that the good news and the resurrection as it helps give definition to the good news is exactly what they need to help their worship get all straightened out. Now, what is the good news? Well, every religion has it. In fact, every other religion in the history of man has this as as its basis. It is to do good and to hope for the best. Regardless of prophet or creed or religious writings, Except for Christianity, every other religion on the planet says, do your, do good and hope for the best. But what is the good news of Christianity? Well, the good news of Christianity is this, that God is good. He's the only good, not man. No ability in man to be good, but only God. He is holy and true, and He loves sinful, broken, fallen man in such a way that Jesus came to be the righteousness that God requires of men for men to take the wrath of God that men deserves by Himself dying on the cross, to secure this forever by being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. And all of this can be yours if you have faith, believing upon Christ, trusting in Him, and turning from loving and trusting this world. So even here at the onset, I plead with you to consider that Christ alone saves. Christ came to save sinful men. If you do not believe yourself to be a sinner, Christ did not come to die for you. He said He came to to seek and to save the lost. You have to realize that you are lost without Him in this world. That you cannot do good on your own in order to make it to heaven. That you believe and trust that only Christ is the one of whom God said, Well done. I'm well pleased. If you believe that, trusting and believing that Christ is, is in your place all the righteousness that God desires. That Christ was in your place the one who bore the wrath that you deserve because of your sin. And that you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus rose from the dead to confirm forever and to validate forever the good news of what He has done on behalf of sinners like you and me. You can and will be saved. But the resurrection not only gives clarity to our gospel, pointing us distinctly to the person of the risen Christ as revealed in the scriptures. But the resurrection also gives our gospel security. There's authority here. Christ rose from the grave. He conquered then sin and death. Conquered it. Defeated it. He stood on the neck of Satan. He has bound Satan. At least constrained him. One day, He will fully and finally conquer him. And there will be full and final victory. But we know that He has indeed given victory to those who repent and are born again. We also have security not just in the authority He gives, but in the perpetuity of the Gospel. Why? Why do I say that? Well, because in former days, all the types and shadows and images of what sacrifice looked like, seen in... Sacrificial lambs and bulls and goats and pigeons administered by priests. They all died. The sacrifice was only as good as the blood that was then shed. And none of those pigeons, none of those bulls, none of those goats rose from the dead. Christ is the final lamb of God for sinners. The final. We must believe in Christ alone to save. There is no other sufficient Savior because Christ is the only one alive. He's also our priest. He's gone before us to the Father to help us see and know that we can forever know Him and live with Him. There's no other priest. We're not waiting on another one because Jesus is alive. The only reason to replace the priest is because they have died. Jesus is alive. That changes the Gospel and gives clarity to even the security we have because he, it has authority over sin and death and he has perpetuity over it all. He is alive forever. Thirdly, the resurrection also gives the gospel boldness, certainly in the way we live, but also in what we proclaim. Two months after his conversion, David Brainerd enrolled at Yale. In his second year at Yale, he was sent home because he was suffering from a serious illness that caused him to spit blood. It's believed that he was suffering from tuberculosis, the disease that would eventually take, uh, lead to his death seven years later. When he returned in November of 1740, tensions were emerging at Yale because the faculty, uh, staff, um, and the students were at odds about spiritual awakening that was happening in New England. It had been prompted by preachers like George Whitfield, who came and, pre- and preached about genuine biblical conversion and a deep, robust theology. And this was exciting many of the young people in the region. Now this led to the College of Trustees passing a decree in 1741 that, quote, "...if any student of this college shall directly or indirectly say that the rector, either of the trustees or tutors or hypocrites, carnal or, un- are, are carnal or unconverted men, he shall for the first offense make a public confession in the hall and for the second offense be expelled." End quote on the afternoon of the same day the faculty for some unknown reason except to think that somehow they would have their case validated invited Jonathan Edwards to preach at the commencement address but much to their dismay he ended up siding with students giving legitimate evidences of conversion speaking and preaching to those effects well in the next term Brainerd was expelled from Yale because he commented on one of his tutors, one of his teachers, Chauncey Whittlesley. Quote, he said, he, said quote, he has no more grace than a chair and that he wondered why the rector did not drop down dead for finding students perceived as overzealous. He later apologized for the first comment, but he did not ever making the second. And the second would have been somewhat out of character from what we've read of Brainerd in his own, by his own hand. But overall, this episode really grieved Brainerd a great deal, especially as a recent law forbade the appointment of ministers in Connecticut unless they had graduated from Harvard, Yale, or some European institution. This meant he had to change plans. But eventually, a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, Jonathan Dickinson, took notice of Brainerd and took him under his wings, so to speak. He wanted to get him reinstated into Yale, but he was unsuccessful. So instead, he encouraged Brainerd to devote himself to missionary work among the Native Americans. Eventually, this is exactly what he did. See, the resurrection gives the gospel boldness. It means that we can do whatever we believe God has called us to do. It means that we can go wherever we believe that God has called us to go. In fact, we can be so saturated the gospel that wherever we go, we can proclaim Him rightly, regardless of the cost. So we can live boldly, we can proclaim boldly. In fact, Romans 10, 8-10 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And a few verses later in Romans 10.17, So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So, living and proclaiming go together in in order for us to boldly live and proclaim the living Christ. We must do so with the words of Scriptures. And we can boldly do so regardless of the reviling that will occur, regardless of the persecution we may face. We can do so boldly because we know that the only way that God chooses for faith to be born in the hearts of men is through the declaration of His Word. And we should seek for our living to bring beauty to a Word proclaimed. So the go- the resurrection changes our understanding of the Gospel. Secondly, the resurrection changes our understanding of death. Picking up in verse 12. Now, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And just there alone we see that the people naturally were asking then about, well, what happens to the dead? If Christ is alive, then what happens to those who have died that are in Christ? And that is a key operative phrase, in Christ. See, the only hope for resurrection from the dead unto eternal life with God is having been in Christ. There is no hope for eternal life with God apart from the person of Jesus Christ. If we live in this life apart from Christ, then we will live for eternity in a damnable place called hell that is apart from Christ as well. Because that is what we believe. We did not believe Christ in the life here and now, and we will not live as if He is ours then. I mean, who of us has not been touched by death, particularly seemingly untimely ones? And for some, we've experienced miscarriages, we've experienced death in the womb, we've experienced the death of children, or, or even the death of, of older adults, but seemingly still a decade or two too soon. Even this week in our church, we've experienced this in the passing of Marsha Powell. And yet we know that because the resurrection is true, that there is hope for those in Christ. And Marcia certainly was in Christ. See, despite what many claim today about us being so much like animals, there is really only one life to live. And there is one life to be raised. And that is the human life. Christ shows us definitively that there is real death in His humanity and there is real life after death in His divinity. And he brings the two together in eternal perfection. See, here's a point. If Christ is not raised, then Christians are the most pitiful of the hopeless lot of humanity. Why? Because Christians are to live with the circumspect view that there is resurrection to come. We leverage everything we have. We put our treasures in the world to come, not in this life. If there was no resurrection, then we should put our treasure in this life only. But that's not the case. See, if Christ is raised, then there is life after death. And that's exactly the fact that Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact is, Christ has been raised. Now, but how and why? Look at verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so here's, here's how it happens. We die because of Adam's sin. We have all inherited a sinful nature, and that sinful nature expresses itself in sinful action. And sin deserves death. Therefore, we die. The curse of Adam's sin was death. But Jesus comes like a second Adam. Why? Because He's born by the Word of God. Yes, through Mary, but He's born by the Word of God. And He comes to us in full humanity, but still fully God. And He comes and brings life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ brings life where Adam brought only death. Now, we don't really have time to dive into this too deeply, but just to be honest to the text, I do want to briefly touch on what we see in verse 29. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Now, first of all, this is unusual language for Paul. He could mean a practice in error that actually proves his point, in a sense, from the negative side. Not unlike what he did with the Greeks and the Europagus when he was quoting in Acts 17 their poets. He wasn't saying that their poets were right, but their poets even knew that there was still someone, something else out there. And here it's very possible that he's taking even a wrongful practice, but one that even though it's wrong, it's presuming that there is life after death, and that even these people in error know intuitively that there is something else. Or he could be keeping with the figurative language that he's given with the first Adam and the second Adam, meaning that those who are baptized on behalf of the dead, he could be referring to, when we are baptized, we're baptizing, we're being baptized, the dead man, the Adam, he's being buried. And raised to life is the new life that's in Christ. While we're not sure, we do know for a fact, because there's nothing else in the rest of Scripture that would give us anything hinting at the baptism of the dead. Mormons believe that. Um, there certainly are practices within Catholicism that um, while not kind of that kind of, beha- that kind of uh, uh, substitutionary baptism, but there, is, there are certainly practices that help those who are already dead move along in the afterlife. Well, there's nothing in the actual scriptures that bear any credibility to that whatsoever. So we shouldn't get hung up about it, but we do know this that baptism doesn't save, even as we've seen this morning, in baptism, we see that there is it is a symbol and a picture of the new life, of the resurrected Christ being born in the hearts of men and women, those that He gives the faith to receive His grace. And the symbol of coming out of that water is a resurrection symbol. It's beautiful. Now, he concludes this section with this. It seems a little odd, but really it's not. He says, verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So right there he's saying that even this understanding of life after death, it impacts what we do in the here and now. Why would we do risky, life-threatening things for the sake of the gospel if we did not believe that there would be the resurrection of the dead in Christ? Verse 33, he says something very important about how to help maintain this. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What he's saying there is it is important for us to see the value of persevering the gospel truth in our lives. We need to remind each other of the resurrection. Basically, in the context of the local church, we need to make sure that we are in good fellowship with one another who mutually believe that Christ is risen. This will help us preserve and maintain our view of the resurrection, which will then change how we live. Thirdly, the resurrection changes our understanding of the afterlife. Doesn't it make sense if we're going to talk about what happens to the body after death? Well, then what happens to us really from that point on? What happens in the afterlife? It starts in verse 35. He says, "...but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies." And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives a body as He has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. This is really an important point because it helps us understand that as surely as God raises the dead, He raises the dead in such a way, equips them with such a body as to maintain for eternity everything necessary that eternity demands, namely, We will be equipped to live forever to worship God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's critical. God will give us the body that's necessary to live for eternity. And it's lived for his purpose. This gives hope to us. We we don't go just to dust, we don't we aren't annihilated uh, as we breathe our last breath in this flesh. No. We're given new bodies. We die at His coming, the dead are raised, and those who are alive at the time, they also meet Him in the air with him. and we are given new glorified bodies. And from that point on, we are then living perfectly, freely, and capably in the kingdom of heaven. And he bases it on a very simple fact that we even see throughout nature. In order for something to live, something has to die. You see this again and again and again. Now, he even leaves some room for mystery. He's not really sure. He doesn't really say this is what we will be like. But he says even if we don't know exactly what we'll be like, we know that we will be, in a sense, like him. In fact, the Apostle John says this in 1 John 3, 1-3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Do you hear that language? We become what we behold. We will become like Him why? Because we will see him as he is. But then he brings it into the present. He says, Everyone who has this hope thus basically sanctifies their life. They purify themselves even in the here and now. This is critical. What we believe about the afterlife and even the resurrection of the dead and even our glorified bodies helps inform how we live in our bodies now. We will become what we behold. Do you look to Christ? Is, your, is the longing of your heart to be like Christ? That's a beautiful thing. See, once His Word is complete, those in Christ alone, only those in Christ, will be raised to new life and those resurrected bodies will be like Christ. They will be human, but a different and glorified type. Speculations are really wasted here. The key is being in Christ. This beautiful truth that those in Christ will be fit for eternal life in every way and the taking on of immortality and able our infinite praise of our glorious God we should be like him because we will see him as he is fourthly the resurrection changes our understanding of a successful life I mean just think about it you may get to this point and think why does this matter but surely you've already seen why this matters along the way where we can see that when you really understand the gospel in light of it being fulfilled and sealed and complete in the person of Jesus Christ, who is resurrected from the dead, that it, it certainly gives clarity and understanding and power and boldness to our gospel that we proclaim. And the way we do it is without fear. Why? Because we do not fear even death. Because He will raise us up. And He will raise us up in the last day in such a way that we will live eternally with glorified bodies. His resurrection changes everything. And it changes then how we measure success. Because the end game for our success is not in this world. The end game for our success is actually in simply being faithful before the living Christ. Here's what he says in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swelled up in victory. That's Isaiah. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's Hosea prophetically, the scriptures bear witness to the fact that death will be conquered. And that death will be conquered through the coming Messiah. Jesus Christ is that Messiah. And Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. This is important for us for living now because we then understand that it's not flesh and blood, so therefore it's not the, the things that flesh and blood achieves that will be ultimate success. It's what the spiritual man achieves. It's... It's doing the eternal works. Sure, we can have our, our secular jobs, our, our regular vocations, but they just provide a background for us to be with people, to share the gospel, to make disciples of all men. See, we spend so much of our blood, sweat, tears, and money in investing in a life that's not going to last. We try to, we try to make earth heaven. And to help our guilt, we, we try to make it more ethical and more moral with Jesus' help. But Jesus is not giving us the world so that we find heavenly satisfaction in it. We are in the world to proclaim an all-satisfying Christ and long to be with Him there. Now, there's lots of speculation about the return of Christ and when that will happen, how that will happen, what has to happen first before it all happens, but we know this. Because He's risen, He's coming back. Understanding this should fuel our understanding of desiring to do nothing less than what He sees as being well and good. We want to hear from our Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. On the 1st of April 1743, after a brief period serving a church on Long Island, Brainerd began working as a missionary to Native Americans, which he would continue until late 1746, when worsening illness prevented him from working three years at the most. 1743 to 1746. That's all he had in hands-on ministry. Was it worth it? Brainerd's diary, even though covering a very short span, has been used of the Lord to call many into missionary service. David Brainerd, this guy who ends up dying at the age of 29, has been used of God in such a way that some would argue that his diary, his recordings of his life, has been used more than any other book apart from the Scriptures in calling men and women to full-time missionary service. It's astounding. See, we know because Christ is one, He defeated death and sin, that we know that we can risk everything for the sake of the Gospel, that even if we die, we're fine. But we also know that sin cannot rob us of that joy of eternal life, because He has conquered every sin and all of its penalty. Now, hopefully, you know by now that if you're truly in Christ, you do not desire to keep on sinning. If you think that you're secure for eternal life, but have no desire to repent of your sin and to follow Christ in his ways, then you have biblical reason and warrant to question your salvation. However, we do all sin and we do all stumble, and many times we sin for seasons. But for the true believer, those seasons will not last. There will be conviction that will bring us back to Him. That would bring us assurance. Because we're simply living out what His Word says believers live out. Therefore, while the world gauges success by what's accomplished in this world, their scorecard is not God's scorecard. When He says well done, it will not be about your financial portfolio or job status or the number of children that you have or your marital status or their marital status or their education level. Sure, there's stewardship within these things. But what He estimates as successful living is about faithfulness to Him through His Word in these spheres of your life, knowing Him, sharing Him, loving His bride by teaching her, caring for her, and building her up all around the world. Lastly, the resurrection changes our understanding of life right now. See, we stated all along the way that our understanding of how the resurrection changes everything, especially related to the Gospel and our death and afterlife, and what success looks like. It bears saying again and again that the resurrection changes how we live right now. Think about it. If you really deeply believe that Christ has risen from the dead, is alive today, has conquered sin, has conquered death, is going to return to rule, and is going to give you a new imperishable body, what wouldn't change? You would live for the Gospel. You would share the Gospel. You would have confidence in the Gospel. You would have no fear, and you would have more joy. He says in verses Starting in verse 56 through 58. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. See, the reason death exists is because we sin. Sin deserves death. Romans 6.23. 3.23. And the power of sin is the law. The law shows us definitively what sin is. And once sin is defined, we become aware that we have a death sentence on us. But then he says, verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Christ is alive. He has fulfilled the law in His life, His perfect, righteous living. He has conquered death by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. And being raised from the dead forever means that His righteous life, His substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of sinners like us, His faithfulness, Keeping all the law, He has satisfied forever all that God requires for sinners like you and me to be saved forever. So what are we to do? Well, in the meantime, we are to give thanks. Give thanks for salvation. Give thanks that Christ has satisfied everything to be able to conquer death and the law's description of sin which leads to our deaths. Give thanks. Then He says, The last verse. Be steadfast. Therefore, my beloved brothers, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Not in vain. It's beautiful. He says we're to be steady, firm, abounding in the work of the Lord. This is an increasing measure. We're to basically be dreaming of ways to serve God. To be steady and firm about it. This is a description of the work that we're to do in the meantime. We are to work very hard and work hard for the gospel's sake. And then we can know that it's not in vain, regardless of what we do see as fruit or not. It's not in vain. We're just to be faithful. He will bear the fruit. And all of this is because Jesus Christ is alive. In November of 1746, David Brainerd became too ill to continue ministering and so moved to Jonathan Dickinson's house in Elizabethtown. Right after a few months of rest, he traveled to Northampton, Massachusetts, where he stayed at the house of Jonathan Edwards. Apart from a trip to Boston in the summer of that year, he remained at Edwards' house until his death the following year. In May 1747, he was diagnosed with incurable consumption, again tuberculosis. In these final months, he suffered greatly. In his diary on the 24th of September of that year, he said, In the greatest distress that I've ever endured, an uncommon kind of cough, which either strangled me or threw me into a straining to vomit. See, during this time, he was nursed nursed by Jerusha Edwards. This is Jonathan's, Jonathan Edwards' 17-year-old daughter. The friendship that grew between them was the kind that led some to suggest that they had some kind of romantic attachment, although there certainly was never any kind of physical expression of that at all. She really essentially only knew him on his deathbed. Brainerd died from tuberculosis on the 9th of October, 1747, at the age of 29. He's buried at Bridge Street Cemetery in Northampton. And buried next to him is Jerusha, Jonathan Edwards' daughter. She died a mere five and a half months later, in February of 1748, as a result of contracting tuberculosis from nursing Brainerd. Is it worth it? Would this be an unsuccessful life to to waste your life by dying at such a tender age of 17? As certainly as Brainerd looks young at 29, 17 looks all the younger. His last entry in his diary a week before his death on Friday, October 2nd, Brainerd says, My soul was this day at turns sweetly set to God. I longed to be with Him that I might behold His glory. I felt sweetly disposed to commit all to Him. Even my dearest friends, my dearest flock, my absent brother, and all my concerns for time and eternity. Oh, that His kingdom might come to the world. That they might uh, all love and glorify Him for what He is in Himself. And that the blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of His soul and be satisfied. Oh, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Jesus is alive. And He changes how we understand salvation, life, death, even eternity. All this is radically impacting our daily life. His resurrection changes everything. So when we gather, particularly on Easter, and we say, He is risen, and the response is, He is risen indeed. I want you to think that your indeed is loaded with resolutions. It's loaded with a resolution to give thanks for the Gospel. It's loaded with a resolution that as you give thanks for the Gospel, it's informed by understanding that Christ satisfied God's law requirements for perfection. He satisfies God's righteous judgment of death, even though Christ didn't deserve it. We did. But He did that for us. That our indeed needs to be packed with a resolution to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. Because no matter what we do for the Gospel's sake, we know that because Christ is alive, we will be too, one day. So, conclusion? It's actually very simple. What must change in your life right here, right now, because Jesus Christ is alive. If you're a Christian, are you immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord? Or are you trying to build for yourself a kingdom here on earth? Even if it's unintentionally that way, is that what you're doing? Repent of that. Turn to Him now. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these words of 1 Corinthians 15 and awaken you to your need to trust Christ, the living Christ, to be your Savior. That you need Him. That you need a Savior because you're a sinner. Because you can't measure up to God's perfections and His requirements. That you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins that, and you deserve to be there. And that, as fantastic as it sounds, on the third day He actually rose from the dead, physically rose from the dead, that you believe that Jesus is alive. And then repent. Turn from trusting in this world and trust in the living Christ. Commit that to Him. When you do, you will know just this, that the resurrection absolutely, convincingly, changes everything. Let's pray. God, I pray that You would take these words and by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit move them into the lives of each hearer that we would understand and revisit the nature of the resurrection, its reality. And Lord, I pray that it would be such a present reality that we would realize that it changes everything. Namely, Christ who is alive changes everything. So bring some to You now and correct, lovingly so, those who are yours, that they may follow you more rightly in light of the fact that Jesus Christ lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.